This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I've been following so many major stories, mostly focused on the White House and President Biden. Hey, folks, it's another Fanboy Friday with me, Shah Jahan Khan. This week's guest is Sabrina Siddiqui. Sabrina is a White House reporter at The Wall Street Journal, where she covers the Biden presidency. Siddiqui previously covered national politics at The Guardian, Huffington Post, and Bloomberg News. She has covered both the Trump and Obama administrations as well as the 2012, 2016, and 2020 presidential elections. Siddiqui has regularly appeared on CNN, MSNBC, CBS, and PBS's Washington Week. She graduated from the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University in 2008 and lives in Washington, D.C. with her husband and their daughter. It turns out that Siddiqui is not only a hashtag goals-level journalist, but super close with my younger sister, Mariam, and married to a close family friend of ours. I was very fortunate to be able to get this interview fairly easily considering how busy she is. You can read an excerpt of our interview on Rafelion's Fawn website for Muslim American creative projects at createfawn.com. That's C-R-E-A-T-E-F-A-N-N.com. More with Sabrina Siddiqui and me after a quick break. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. I think 
The one that probably has been more of a focus is the very real possibility that this next presidential election is going to be a rematch between President Biden and former President Trump, which I think is obviously not only unusual, but I think the emotions that it's elicited from a lot of people I talk to are very different from the many other elections I've covered. And so I really do wonder what that's going to mean in terms of voter participation and just general interest in the election. And then I think the other big one was President Biden's trip to Ukraine, which, you know, I had been covering the administration, the Biden administration's response to the war in Ukraine for some time. But then I ended up being one of two journalists with the president on that trip, the secret trip to Kiev. It was a big opportunity to be a part of and a really big, I think, responsibility for me, but also then has caused me to pay much more attention to, you know, the war in Ukraine as it entered or is in its second year and most of the world is kind of starting to tune out. What's something maybe that's like a little less well-known that is just something that's interesting to you that you're following? Oh, a little less well-known? So I have been doing more coverage of uh, AI technology, which a lot of people are paying attention to. So I don't think that it's like less known, but I think that what is less known are like all of the many, many ways in which it is impacting day-to-day society. And so right now, a lot of the conversation has been much more similar to what we saw with social media companies when Facebook and Twitter, Snapchat, and TikTok really became popular and widely used platforms. It was more around regulations and with respect to some of those companies, more about reigning in misinformation, but also protecting free speech and just the intersection between social media and politics. What's interesting with AI is some of the storylines that I'm looking at are like, should students be allowed to use AI in schools? And who's going to set that policy? Anything around schools is like always so controversial. And, you know, there are some universities that have had an outright ban on the use of AI by students are moving away from that because there is a big push by, of course, these are uh, companies with a stake in AI lobby on their behalf, but to liken it to a calculator and say, you know, if we allow students to use calculators, why wouldn't we let them use this technology that's now available at their disposal for writing, for researching and all other uh, types of things? You know, I even like reported on how President Biden has interacted with AI, which apparently included having a chat GPT paint artistic renderings of his dog. The most like exactly what you think an 80 year old would have done with it. <laughs> but it's like inside the Oval Office. This is something that they're constantly talking about, constantly yeah. thinking about. And it affects everything from productivity to job losses to elections and, and misinformation to even just how we do our day to day jobs or how yeah. students going to school every day. What do you remember from publishing like your first story and your or your first big byline? Like, what was that like? Honestly, I think in terms of actual what I would count as bigger bylines were when when I started working in um, reporting. Uh, before that, I used to be the editor in chief of a South Asian lifestyle magazine that was online called Divani, but it was spelled like D I V A N E E, so like Diva, like mm-hmm. the, the play on words. And it was before Brown Girl Mag, the Juggernaut, and a lot of these like diaspora-oriented South Asian outlets had come up. And, and so we were kind of the main go-to for, you know, entertainment, political, or business or tech coverage concerning India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, or the South Asian diaspora. And so that was like a whole like responsibility that I felt just based on my own background to deliver 
that kind of information to a niche audience. I had many bylines there, but when it counted as my first byline, you know, when I started covering the 2012 election for the Huffington Post mm-hmm. and, you know, I had a lot of bylines that were just day-to-day election coverage and it just seemed like a really big deal. And I think it kind of is important now and I've, I've been working in this industry for a long time to sometimes think about how big of a deal it was to see my name on a major story period or just see my name published at a major news website and, and reporting on the election because it's easy to start taking that stuff for granted. And then you remember that people were just trying to get their clips out there who are like trying to look for freelance work and they just want to write a story and have it printed. So I, I see that also like appreciating what that meant and the trajectory it set me on. But I also remember I was covering Mitt Romney's campaign before he was Senator Romney and when he was the former governor of Massachusetts and running against President Obama in 2012. And I had this big reported piece on his time at Bain Capital. And it was basically challenging the notion that um, his private sector experience would serve him well as president and leading the federal government. That was like at the height of the center of his argument. But I did like a lot more reporting on his time at Bain Capital and when he tried to apply that type of approach as governor in Massachusetts, oftentimes it was to mix success. And I think like I remember it was the first time I had a story that was going to challenge a campaign and a presidential campaign in a big way and how anxious I was when it was going to go be published. All the legal checks we went through, you know, you go through a lot of the fact checking, you know, the like variety of sources, having to check with the relevant campaign officials to let them know it's coming, give them a chance to comment. And I just remember the adrenaline, you know, when it was going to go live. And I'm like, all right, because then you're opening up yourself to any and all feedback, criticism, attempts by the campaign to discredit it. So that one really sticks out just because it was like the first time that I really think I had a big piece that ran on the election. And a lot has changed in in Mitt Romney's life since then. (laughs) How has the industry changed from when you like first started? I mean, the first job I got in political reporting was at Bloomberg News in 2010, and I was a stringer at the White House desk. So in that capacity, I was not writing every day, but I was supporting the White House correspondents by feeding them what we call string, which is just like reporting like lines on like, here's what President Obama's administration, here's what President Obama is doing today, here's like what his movements have looked like, what time he went left for this place, what time he got back, here's something that like, you know, maybe you wouldn't have seen on TV or some of the quotes, you know, interactions he had with people that was, but you know, that I think at that time it was still a lot more traditional news gathering and social media was only just becoming more of a factor, but it was still pretty novel for a lot of us to tweet. People were still very conservative about like guidelines for tweeting and sharing reporting that way and sharing analysis that way. The cottage industry of TV analysis, of which I've been a part as well, was was around, but it was nothing like what it came to be when Trump entered the picture and when it really became like 24-7 news where 90% of it at least was for a while about politics. And I think like, you know, while I think print was still going strong and there was still, I think, less attention around, you know, not just what will drive clicks, but when you're thinking about a story, you weren't necessarily thinking about all the different platforms that it will appear on and how um, you were not thinking about all the different types of multimedia at your disposal. Are we, how are you going to tell it visually? What will the graphics look like? What will 
I, will there be an accompanying video? Will we do a podcast segment on it here? Here at the Wall Street Journal, we have podcasts. You know, is it going to be like a reported piece? Is it going to be more of an analysis on online that's got bullets? And, you know, is it a listicle almost? You know, there's like all this stuff that has changed that I think, you know, is because there's just so many ways to present information and readers now as we have much to our frustration, read the headline and maybe the top two lines, you really have to reel them in. And we have to think a lot more about how to reel them in when they're accessing news and articles on their smartphones, on their other devices, or they've got multiple browsers open. And they're not just sitting in front of like one article at a time while they're not really multitasking in this in the way that, you know, it used to be much more simple. And the only other thing I'll say on this before, because I don't want to take too much time is, you know, I think we have a lot less time because we have the ability to publish very quickly. I mean, we're talking like most places I work in a breaking news environment, you have a couple of minutes to send a few bullet points. It's like if there's like a real true like breaking news moment and it's like President Biden just announced something, it's like you have a few minutes to get like that first sentence and a few bullet points on what the announcement is if we didn't know it was coming. And then in like 10 minutes, you better have three paragraphs ready, you know, in like within like within half an hour you should pretty much have your like five to six hundred word story baseline ready and then you can keep adding to it and filling it out as the day unfolds that pace is so much faster and more competitive now that there is you know the ability with technology to produce really quickly and also and now that there are so many more competitors on the in this space who are primarily going to digital first and there's no time for us to wait print deadlines and, you know, and it's not, there's only a handful of websites or news outlets that are putting this up on their website soon. It's like everyone is moving real fast. And when you go to Google News and you see that news story, you're going to see like see related articles and it's going to be like, mm-hmm. right, about the same announcement that President Biden made that day or the same speech. So you have to move so fast now. And that means you have to be so much more careful that you're getting it right. What's your daily routine as a journalist? It shaves a lot under Biden compared with under Trump. <laughs> under Trump, it was like, oh, what tweets have I woken up to? <laughs> oh, gosh. And like, it's like already a five alarm fire. And like, you know, you wake yeah. up or you like, wow, like provocation with North Korea. Woke up to that at five, you know, like 5 a.m. tweet. And and like the Pentagon didn't even know what the president was talking about. And like everyone's up in arms and. And everyone going to Republicans on Capitol Hill to be like, what do you think of what Trump said and, or what he tweeted? And like, we don't even know what he tweeted. It was like this cycle that everyone was caught in. And then and then while you were like putting together that story with like all the reaction to what he had tweeted, by then he had actually tweeted something else or triggered or said something and triggered a whole new news cycle. And that was kind of in some ways like the way the approach also or the strategy. Now it's like a very, it's, it's, it's calmer. <laughs> you kind of, like, oh, wake up, check the headlines, check my email, have a cup of chai, you know, like with my, I nurse my kid. I'm like, you know, I have a 16-month-old daughter, Sophia. I like play with her, hang out with her, breakfast. Like a little more like leisurely. Make my way into the office. It's not as glamorous in that sense where it's like, as people think, I think it can actually be like, it, it can be, it, it, it can be a very much desk job as well, depending on the day. You know, days I go and then you're kind of like meeting with your editors, you're talking to your colleagues, you're coming up with stories, you're making phone calls, interviewing people or just checking in with your sources. Like what's out there? What are we missing? Or do you know what's going on here or what, with this particular thing that every that's going on in Washington this week? You know, well, days that we go to the White House for us, it's kind of run of the mill. But those are the moments where you're like, oh, you know, for us, it's like, oh, you know, President Biden speaking and oh, he's late and like, I just want to get out of here. And, 
And then you have to have those moments where you're like, you know, I remember Ali, my my husband, um, you know, was with me for an event where uh, Biden was speaking and he was just like, wow, like the president is like speaking like right in front of me. And I, it was a moment where I was like, oh, yeah, like this is not right. So it's like really important in this industry to keep checking yourself like that. But like, you know, the days I go White House, I think are a little bit more exciting because, you know, typically the president has at least one event. You kind of gather for his speech. You try to shout a question if he is not, you know, sometimes he's already taking questions. And I've had moments where, I've, you know, there's press conferences, a lot of pressure on you uh, when you're asking questions on behalf of the entire press corps. And there's the press briefing. And, you know, it, it can be a bit of a mundane exercise, but it's an important moment to like keep holding government officials accountable, even if they're not giving you much or they're just reverting to talking points. You are questioning them before the public on behalf of the public and in the interest of transparency and accountability. And so, you know, you you kind of go through the various like day to day movements at the White House and you put together your stories. And some days it's driven by what's in the news and you're just writing the news and reporting the news. And other days you're working on something maybe you thought of that's a little more step back. Hopefully it makes people think or like you said, something people haven't been paying attention to. And you you brought something new to the table. Those are the ones that I think you feel more proud over that you'll remember at the end of the day. What are some of the like most important skills that a good journalist should have in your experience? Writing, writing, writing. <laughs> so my big thing about this is no matter how much changes about our industry, it does not matter if like AI is eventually going to start writing some of our stories for us, which some news outlets are experimenting with, like for data news, right? If something happens somewhere, like what, or you have information about a, a you know, why can't a, a you know, computer technology do it? But I think everyone needs to know how to write. And you can, you know, be starting to tell more stories visually, you can be, you know, doing more TikToks, which we even do here at the Wall Street Journal. But someone has to write a script. You know, even a TikTok, there's a script. I mean, I've done TikToks about, you know, President Biden's trip to Ukraine or, you know, about like the new situation or remodel that they just completed. There's always a script, no matter where you are, no matter what format it is. When you're podcasting, too, obviously, you know, like oftentimes, especially if it's journalism, you know, there's a script or there's like some questions you've thought of that you've come up with. There's like a, like a you know, a narrative here that you're trying to put forward. So I just think that fundamentally, no matter what changes in this industry, you should always work on your writing, um, always practice your writing. You know, there will be some technical jobs that don't require it. But, you know, the majority of jobs require experience in writing. And I think good writing will always help you stand out. And I think everyone should now be willing to experiment with platforms and not be afraid to embrace some of this change. I mean, I felt really old doing a TikTok for the Wall Street Journal. I mean, I'm not like, I mean, I'm like 37, but like in TikTok era, I'm a dinosaur. You know, I was like a Facebook, Instagram, Twitter generation reporter. And now I'm like being put in front of TikTok and I'm like, oh, like the mom on TikTok, right? But, but you know, people want, to be told stories in more compelling or accessible ways. And, and, and they want like you to kind of distill what matters and why in a very short span of time. And I think that's a really important skill to try to pick up because it actually comes back to what I think is fundamentally the most important um, piece of journalism is getting to the bottom of the truth. And fact, I think holding those in positions of power accountable and reporting facts, but also most importantly, explaining to people why it matters and why they should care. And that's always been a huge challenge, I think, for me and reporting, but frankly, for journalists anywhere is why should you care about what you're reading, what you're watching, what you're accessing? 
And so I think the more you actually experiment with different types of storytelling, the more you're going to be able to also pick up on being able to distill that for people in a way that's not always as straightforward you're putting together an 800 word article and you're just kind of going through the more traditional structure of putting a story together. So I think today, good journalists should also very much embrace new technology and new platforms because there's no undoing it. We may be rightfully think that they've undermined the industry in some ways or, or made lower quality news gathering or storytelling more widely available or misinformation more widely available. But we also have a responsibility then to try and, you know, cut through that noise and, and filter out the truth to people and help them explain why they should care. Who are Muslim identifying in any way journalists that like you admire? So there are a lot of Muslim journalists that I admire, Muslim identifying journalists that I admire. I think that Ayman Mahideen is uh, really great. And one of the first Muslim journalists that we saw take like a more prominent role in television as a correspondent. There are people who had been analysts before, but this was someone who was just reporting from the ground and was Muslim. And, you know, he certainly was, I think, well known at Al Jazeera. And when he was covering the 2008, 2009 Gaza War, as well as the Arab Spring. But then obviously he went on to report for NBC. And, you know, he's now you know, an anchor who is not specifically focused on issues affecting the Muslim world, but frankly, you know, both domestic and global affairs. And it's great because it's the kind of representation that I think we need to see a lot more of. And in some ways, he's one of the people who helped pave the way. Obviously, you know, there's so many people like Mehdi Hassan who have brought a different style of journalism to the table, more willing to challenge the conventional wisdom of how reporting works, how journalism works, how you should and shouldn't interview people. It's very British <laughs> and it's not very American. He is obviously from from the UK. But in some ways, like we, you kind of do need to see that more here in the US because we have a lot of decorum here. But sometimes you have to ask yourself why. Like We're not here to be friends with people. And, you know, I guess, yes, of course, you don't want to you're not trying to be rude to your subjects or to people that you're interviewing, but you're there to get answers. And and that's ultimately your job. And so, you you know, it is actually completely important and fair for journalists to call people out when they're obfuscating or misleading or even lying to the public. And that's something that Mehdi has invested a lot in. Um, Malika Bilal at Al Jazeera is someone who is one of the first Muslim journalists in television, you know, hosting a show who, you know, is, wears hijab. And that is a, has also been really important, I think, for people to see. And it's not just the visual representation. I mean, she's a very substantive journalist as well. Who, you know, first she was with The Stream and, and doing television. And now she's got just this phenomenal podcast, The Take, that is really, you know, I highly recommend for going deep on on issues episode by episode. But she's been a trailblazer for so many younger journalists I know because of the, the, well, I, this is something that really drew me into journalism is there wasn't anyone who looked like Mira whose name sounded like mine um, when I was growing up watching the news on TV. And there were so many times where I've been the only Muslim or brown person on a panel, you know, of either people who are mostly white or we're talking about issues directly affecting Muslims or that pertain to Islamophobia. And other people are speak on, speaking on your behalf. And I think it's a change kind of the way that you know, Muslims have been represented in the news in post 9-11 America. There's always been a need to have more of us at the table and also to kind of break away from this idea that Muslim journalists can only talk about or report on Muslim issues mm-hmm. and of being more part of the mainstream media. That's been so critical. And Malika is one of those people who 
I think helped show younger Muslim journalists what's possible for them. You know, there's so many, I know, girls and women who, whether they wear hijab or don't wear hijab, who saw someone like Malika and were like, I could do that too. And and I, I know I know both Malika and I could, could have had a lot of that growing up if it were up to us. And we hope that, you know, people like Eamon, maybe Malika, I'm not going to be presumptuous about myself. If you see that representation, then the next generation, their path becomes that much easier. Fanboy Friday is a production of Rafaelian Media. It's hosted by me, Shah Jahan Khan, and produced and edited by Ari Mathay. Our theme music was composed by me with help from Nick Sampiello at New Alliance Mastering and features my good friend and longtime musical co-conspirator Tanya Pollitt on vocals. Please follow today's guest, Sabrina Siddiqui, on Twitter, slash X, at Sabrina Siddiqui, S-A-B-R-I-N-A-S-I-D-D-I-Q-U-I. And check out lots of other cool stuff by American Muslim creatives by subscribing now to createfon.com. That's C-R-E-A-T-E-F-A-N-N dot com. Thanks so much. See you next week.